This is Shaka Ward Speak. And today we're going to talk about, well, you heard already, we're designing stuff today. We're talking about design stuff today. Yeah, yeah. And we're entering into this conversation without laughing. We are. Because we realize that we've been laughing too much lately. Yeah, too, too happy. And that would suggest to you that off screen we're having a great time and we're like trying to make you feel bad that we're having (laughs) such a great time. And the truth is sometimes we're laughing so we don't cry. <laughs> it's an hour laugh. so don't laugh, laughing. Gareth. <laughs> don't la- hold it. Um, <laughs> no laughing. This is going to be a very deadpan episode. We're not going to have any emotion. None. None. So we brought in the emotionless doctor, Cody Spice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how I'd always describe him too. <laughs> Code Red, the emotionless doctor. That's the a new one. Emotionless doctor. <laughs> Cody, Cody, it, is, it's like this for like the first four months, and then it, it yeah, we'll one stick. Cody is not, Cody is not emotionless. By the way, I not just tried to see if I can impose that on him. It didn't work. He's smiling big, big right now. You try to inflame my emotions if I can. Yes, by oh gosh, words. Yeah. Uh, nope, no, nope. I'm just gonna stop. <laughs> that, so we're not even code red today. It's uh, we're code blue. We're, 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 code blue. we're just coding. Yeah, yes. we're just coding with Cody Spice. So we're glad to have him again. And uh, what are we talking about today, Gareth? Because you are the design stuff guru. Yeah. So uh, we are bringing up another um, kind of big name from the past. Because uh, we love like the past. Do. Yeah. So we're, yeah. you know, as, as you know, if you've tuned in the design stuff uh, episodes, we, we pick out a single person, we grab a couple things that they say or have said in the past, and we just kind of talk about them. And yeah. Them. Um, entry you know, points. Yeah. They're entry points into a conversation. But also, it's nice because um, when we, if you've been to, art school design school or gone through an art history or art appreciation course like you're getting like kind of snippets yep. of maybe biographical information and that's supposed to give you a big picture uh but with this we actually want to take their words and help you mm-hmm. kind of see a bigger picture of them so this week what we're talking about we're talking about paul rand not Anne rand's brother though no okay not not rand paul's doppelganger okay paul rand yep um so Paul Rand was a graphic designer. Um, you know, he was born in the early 1900s, like 1914, 1915. Uh, another one out of New York. You know, he spent time at uh, Pratt and I think Parsons. Mm. Okay. Um, his his father, when he was younger, was very skeptical about whether or not he'd be able to make a career out of his design uh, interest. Good thing we've gotten away from that. No one ever struggles with that. Yeah, that's not a thing anymore. Yeah, I've never heard that. So... This may sound familiar as well. What his dad did is he was like, he was like, Hey, you can like, you can go to Pratt. Um, but you're going to have to also go to this other school. Um, because yeah, I just, I think you need to fall back. I think, I don't know if it's going to happen. So no one ever talks about fallbacks anymore, either with the (laughs) artist or design. Yeah. It doesn't never happen. But what's great is, so you should really get a minor. (laughs) (laughs) I minored in business. It's meaningful. So the, uh, passion, um, so the, uh, uh, once he got out of school and got uh, a job because mm-hmm. he had been working all through school, 
um, he started doing pretty menial stuff, uh, you know, like we all do our your first entry job. So as a designer, he was kind of making graphics that could be used in in newspapers and media um, anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so it was kind of like you could almost imagine he was like making better clip art in a way. So he's doing this. But um, in the first five, six, seven years of his career, based on everything he had done in school and what a workhorse he was in his job, he had amassed a portfolio where he was able to kind of skip a few steps up the ladder. Mm. Um, and so he was really drawing a lot of inspiration from Swiss design. Um, when he was a kid, he was reading these like, you know, German and Swiss uh, design magazines, uh, like at the library and stuff and like mm -hmm. getting a lot of his information there. And he had a really fantastic knack for incorporating type and image together, uh -huh. um, which may sound weird to us today, but in the early 1900s, that really wasn't something they cared about. It was like, here's type, here's image. They're kind of on a page. All right, slap it together, send it out. Um, and so he got noticed pretty early on. So then he started doing uh, editorial work for what became GQ magazine. And then he started doing more work with Esquire magazine to the point where as a young person, they were like, hey you should art direct these things. Mm -hmm. And his response was heck yeah. No, it was not that it was, I don't have enough knowledge or experience or age for this. Yeah. So thank you, but no, thank you. Which is a crazy, like mature thing to say for him to have be like cognizant enough of like his position in place and everything to say, Oh yeah, I don't think I'm there. But within the next year he had reconsidered and was like, yeah, actually I think let's do this. Heck yes. So he was working in this, um, he started doing a lot of uh, design and logo work as well. So you've seen his stuff. If mm -hmm. you've ever turned on a TV or bought a computer or watched a movie, I mean, he was very, uh, very prolific mid-century modern, um, graphic artist. Mm -hmm. Um, in his later career, he also, uh, taught at Yale for about 15 years, uh, received, I think, emeritus status there was, uh, was inducted into like the, uh, the art director's club in New York and all this other stuff. So, you know, very well known. You've seen his stuff, um, IBM, ABC, mm -hmm. a number of things. The Peacock? Uh, I don't know if he did the Peacock with NBC Just the round not, ABC. Yeah. Uh, Peacock is NBC. Yeah, NBC. Yeah. Did he do the Peacock? I don't know. I'm not mm. sure. Check on that. Um, and so he's done a lot of stuff, including being extremely like painterly and artistic yeah. in the way that he does things. Because um, in something we're not, not going to talk about today, he actually says that he sees... Uh, no difference between art and design. Why aren't we going to talk about that today, Gareth? Uh, because it's a, that's it right there. Like it's that. it's good, but we got some good stuff. To okay, talk about. okay, because okay. that's something that you know we we already have talked about, and we that's believe, fair. But also, it's not necessarily specific to him. Okay, and so the stuff we, we're just going. I got you. I like that he's. I like that he said it though, and I like that you shared it. Yeah, another thing that I think is really great. He had a very uh, different understanding of art. Um, and design. So when you like pressed him for uh, a definition, it was tough for him to really do it because he was like, there, there's myriad definitions yeah. all over the place. But he would make a very clear distinction between art and aesthetics. And he would say art is the practice of an aesthetic. Aesthetics is the like assignment of value. And so huh. he would say art, art is the making and aesthetics is the how you talk about it yeah. would be the kind of way. Gotcha. And so He's got some really fun, fantastic sort of points that he makes that offer a great space for good conversation mm -hmm. because he's, he was always very kind of blunt and straightforward about it. Had that like Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens yeah. uh, sort of like matter of factness in his statements, very sure of himself in those. Um, 
But today we're going to hit a few things uh, from typography uh, to originality and maybe even a little bit to talk about uh, artists as swindlers. Whoa. So we got some, we got some fun stuff. So let's, uh, let's jump right in with the first one. Today, the state of typography is in pretty bad shape. You know, typographers are practically extinct, you know, like, uh, like rare birds. Yeah. So typography and typographers nearly extinct. And when was he saying that? Like rare birds. So he was saying this in the eighties. Eighties. Um, okay. Right? So, um, you know, in terms of historical context, you're seeing this, this is a huge shift in a digital type, right? So you're yes. going from like hand drawn, very specific mm -hmm. to now you're getting like, uh, you're moving towards like digital foundries. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's a ubiquity that can yep. actually happen. Um, and this is coming from a guy whose studio practice would not have necessarily looked that different from a painter. Yeah. Like we've talked about some of the folks. Yeah, the that's past, right. Like Milton Glaser, Saul Bass, yeah. same sort of, same sort of sensibility about it. Georgie. And Georgie Kapish, right? So all this stuff, same sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, that they're extinct, nearly extinct, like exotic birds. Yeah. And I love this one. And I, the reason I wanted to throw this one on the table is, um, typography is not extinct, but that's not what he said. He said typographers. Yeah. So I, I don't know. What do y'all make of it? Well, I'll jump in. The less visible something is, the more opaque it becomes, mm. the less, um, the less it's the less likely it is that someone will aim to do that in a culture that does for you so much. It's easy to take for granted the way Microsoft word gives you a list of, um, type mm -hmm. that on average, you probably don't think about a typographer as much as you think about Microsoft word. Yeah. And you think about, um, can I like download this next set? of type or, you know what I'm saying? So it becomes more about selection and preference. Mm -hmm. Um, in very little in that experience calls out to you and says, I need you to make more of this. Mm -hmm. You can be making this. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, so one thing is the, opa like the opacity factor of, of like, how did that get there? Mm -hmm. And, but in place of how did it get there? What is there? And how does that shape your, uh, consumeristic tendencies? And then, then you throw that into like uh, fewer and fewer people can teach it well. Mm, that's true. Yeah. And they occupy fewer and fewer spaces in Western academies, colleges, and are perceived as dinosaurs mm -hmm. if they are there uh, because of the same reason that there's just a shorthand to this. So, you know. Those are some initial thoughts that uh, kind of come to my mind. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You, you go for like ubiquity of type within a digital space um, and it gets to a point where um, you're like, oh, it's just everywhere. So uh, if there's a lot of something, I probably shouldn't care too much of which I use. Yes. And also if, if, if it's about content, if it's really about communication, if what I'm writing just needs to be read, mm -hmm. then um, it's like kind of physical form can just be changed as I please because yeah. physical form has nothing to do with it um, and it has no tie to the content, Yeah, which would be completely against what he believes. And the, the actual physical form and the thing itself yes. are actually tied together very closely, right. um, that there actually would be like a right typeface to use. Mm -hmm. And this is even when we get into like grunge typography, David Carson and some of the yeah. folks in the eighties, like they're saying the exact same thing. They're just rebelling against the hard form, like Swiss style mm -hmm. of folks like Paul Rand. 
I like this conversation with Cody here because code red has nothing to do with the color. It's about <laughs> reading. And Cody is a oh, great... Oh, it's been spelled R-E-A-D this whole time. Yeah, and everybody thought it was code red, <laughs> including Connor. But it's actually code red as in reading. And Cody is a great reader. Cody That's is true. That's why it clarifies. Yes, I do read a lot. If I have a hobby, it's reading. Um, question. So typographer mm-hmm. as a vocation, is that going to primarily be someone who designs letter forms? Or is that going to be someone who designs and possibly also implements letter forms in design. So like, so if I think I have a set of characters, Mm -hmm. but then there's also how I lay those characters on a page and there's going to be small tweaks and adjustments according to other content on the page, you know, kerning and all those little details. Mm -hmm. Would a typographer do all of that secondary stuff or are they just establishing a set of letter forms? See, this is tough because I think when you get into like the early part of the field where this is kind of coming about from hot type and hand setting and then linotype and things like that, um, I think, and even in, if I were to be so bold as to kind of speak towards how Paul Rand would say it based on other conversations he's had, I think it would be a totality. Okay. So it's like, <clears throat> I would not be able to adequately be able to adjust things like kerning and letting and size and scale um, if I were not also able to create a letter form in which those things were preconceived and mm. understood before I made the form. Um, so it would be a totality. Now, today, if you were to go somewhere and let's say you're you get an internship during college, you're, you're in graphic design and you live near the New York area and there's all these newspapers, magazines, online things or whatever, you could find a junior job as just a typesetter, mm-hmm. which would just be making those minute adjustments. Yeah. Um, not super exciting, but super educational. And then you would have folks who right now their only job is to be a type designer. Mm-hmm. Like they just make it. I mean, we saw this, I think most, it became, it came on the scene like most heavily, I think around 2008 when we saw with Obama's run for president mm-hmm. that the typeface was created for him yep. um, by a very well-known uh, type foundry. Um, and the two guys who made it, like that's, that's their job. They just make typefaces. And it can be extremely lucrative. Um, but that also has something to do with, I think, our conversations in the past of like the over-specialization. You know, because mm-hmm. there's like, do we need people that can only make it or only do it? Um, not, No, I don't think so. Um, but also I wouldn't say that within typography that it's so specialized where the person making a typeface couldn't also set it. Sure. Um, so to answer your question in a non-helpful mm-hmm. way, that's my answer. <laughs> okay. No, that's helpful. Um, and I think uh, another thing with typography, and you know, since you're an avid reader, here's another thing you can read. Uh, so Beatrice Ward, back in the oh, I don't know early 1900s, I think, um, wrote uh, an essay called The Crystal Goblet, where she talks about typography. And what she says is that uh, good typography should act the same way a crystal goblet does. Where mm. when you're drinking wine, you shouldn't be noticing the glass because the wine itself should mm-hmm. be the focus. So same thing. If you're reading a book and you're noticing the typeface, um, then predominantly it's because something's not working. Mm. Now, there are those of us who would be having conversations like this on a podcast or listening to it um, that would say, no, no, I actually like appreciate those forms and understand them. But that's a small minority. Um if a typeface is doing its job, you won't notice it. And so I think when it mm-hmm. comes down to like the extinction 
kind of discussion, Paul Ranstarton of typographers, that may be part of it, is that we have a we have a glut of really helpful, useful typefaces that work to an extent where people might be like, oh, I don't even, I mean, I don't even notice it. Yeah, dude. Yeah. And also, um, uh, you have a, um, a loss of uh, crafting, um, uh, time apprenticing to the point of, of, of fluency and competency and crafting. Yeah. That is a, uh, a period of time. And so that becomes like, that becomes outsourced as technology changes and the outsourcing excludes more of all that's entailed in that. Mm -hmm. And definitionally, when you think about a typographer, let's say, uh, of a, of a, of a optimal historical period of, of that kind of apprenticing too, um, then you see the dwindling of that as, as, as it's not required anymore and therefore becomes less desirable. You saw that with, I remember like architecture classes and it was all hand, you know, hand drawn, everything mm -hmm. was hand drawn. And then core is a Corel draw or CAD like yeah, came yeah. out and like that became a riff because AutoCAD. yeah, AutoCAD because, because you know, the, the uh, architects that were a optimal drafts men, drafts folks, whatever, mm -hmm. um, was less and less that was less and less required of them yeah and so then you saw as that generation faded the generation behind it's like at some point you start to reach for the uh efficiency mm -hmm. and and then then it's gone and you're odd if you're going to spend more time to do something that takes less time when everybody else is paying to do it in less time with more efficiency for yeah. it, you know, and yeah, it's a displacing phenomena that um, really affected every facet of um, like color theory stopped being as, as important, you know, and, and um, it's just interesting to see that, that this is sort of the displacement. And the reason why is because we're getting ready to enter into another phase of displacement. I mean, we're, we're really, you know, not to go there again, but I'm not going, I'm not going to today, but, but, you know, so like there's something really interesting about listening into these because we ourselves are staring down like another phase of this. Mm -hmm. So, so, I mean, just contextually, if he said this quote in the eighties, mm -hmm. you might argue that the eighties was like the real inauguration of like full television culture. Like, sure, the TV had been around for a couple decades, maybe three decades before, um, like personal TV. But it seems like the 80s is where it really settled into, like, the middle class. Like, everyone's got a TV. A mm -hmm. lot of cultural output is going through television as opposed to a print-based culture where 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even in the 70s, if people are consuming media, a decent amount of that media is print mm -hmm. um and so the transition to television then makes sense that there would be a de-emphasis on type because print is still rolling but not not quite the same way or maybe starting to be displaced mm -hmm. and then of course the internet happens in the ubiquity of digital type that we've mentioned mm -hmm. yeah i think you get you know you get these these weird spaces like even within what we're talking about um within like education like that displacement does a number of things and one of the things I think it does is that it assumes. And so everything it assumes, it stops teaching. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so if we assume that it's just out there and you can get it, yes. well, I don't need to teach you how to make it. 
But in the 1930s, I'm not pulling up 400 pre-installed no typefaces. Way. So I got to know how to make that thing. Yeah. And I got to know what it does. And so what and we do. And there's an invention happening because it's not like every type exists. Right. You know, so there's still also frontier ahead of you. And, and if you don't teach someone how to make something, there is something lost in the how to use it mm-hmm. because that is the, there is a connection yeah. between how that's it's a made. degradation for sure. Yeah. And so you, yeah. you lose that. And this is not, this is not a sentimental discussion because I've, I've been in design school with professors that were very much sentimentalists where they were like, we just need everybody to draw stuff on vellum. And you're like, uh, I mean, I mean, maybe, but if they're just as dumb about what it is and how it works, but they can draw it on vellum, it doesn't change anything. Yeah. And so uh, there's a larger conversation there. And so I, I, if you go and you read or listen to some conversations uh, with Paul Rand, um, I think you're going to pick up on the idea that there's, there, there is some, there is something a lot meatier mm-hmm. in design than I think how we, how we teach it or practice it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some of it is that we, we have severed a lot of these connections between the thing itself, how mm-hmm. it's used, how people understand it which was central to a lot of these ideas of kind of continental European design practice in mm-hmm. the early 20th century. Yeah. Less, less nourishment in the matter of making means less uh, enriched and nourished recipients. Mm-hmm. And that's your kind of your move of, of a kind of degradation because you start to acquire a taste for, for plastic essentially, you know I mean? You know what I mean? Yeah, like you, for, you, for something less than. Yeah. You, you, you skip the, you skip the homemade, grilled hamburger and you're fine with just going to grab McDonald's yeah. kind yeah. of thing, right? Like, yeah, yeah. And then think, McDonald's becomes definitional mm-hmm. and it becomes hard to dislodge uh, that as definitional. And so then, you know, if anything, you may uh, in flesh McDonald's, like somebody may come along and make a little better burger, mm-hmm. but because McDonald's becomes definitional, metaphorically speaking, then uh, that slightly better burger is still contending with the definition of McDonald's rather than being completely recentered on you know, yeah. the best, you know, qualitatively mm-hmm. richest uh, starting point. Yeah. And you have these conversations of things like good design that come up because what was understood as kind of like a standard of design that would be good has been replaced with okay or fine. Yeah. And I think you see a lot of rebellion against that. And it's actually a perfect segue into the next quote. All right. Quick question. Would he have considered himself a typographer? I think that he would have considered himself, he would have said uh, he was an artist. Okay. Who does design. Um, and as a part of that, he would need to understand as one of the forms that he uses, uh, to create content, he would have needed to understand type on some level. Okay. So yes and no. Okay. All right, here we go. Let's listen to the next one. The tendency for a designer is to think that since he's getting paid all the time, that he has to be something new. You know, I, 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 I have nothing, I have no objection to anything new. Provided that it's that it's also good, not just new. Our our business is to is to is to search for good things, not new things. Mm, I would like to hear more about what he was gonna say about he was about to wax on about originality, but yeah, so it's um false dilemma, but also a great point. Yeah. So so it's like false dilemma because really what you want is um they're they're not mutually exclusive, but it's a great point that uh, the place to start is, um, so it is, and it isn't a false dilemma is what I want to say. So it, what's nice is, is, um, originality becomes so attached to, uh, ego and personal value, uh, 
attachments that um, you can you can walk into, and I've seen this a lot. You can walk into the pursuit of originality to the detriment of the goodness of the work or the outcome of the work, mm-hmm. and at some point fail enough in that pursuit that you take the failed work and say that's what I was going for, mm-hmm. and you force it to be original, and you impose the mangled thing on an audience and dare them to say that it's not. And a lot of people are non-confrontational. It's just historically speaking. And so, you know, you'll, you'll get away with it. You know, art school, you'll get away with it. Like I meant this, I, I want it to be this way. Mm-hmm. And who are you to say that's not good. And it's like the overwhelming pressure to be an original over successive generations means that there's a point where you start going like, what am I working so hard for? Like, uh, I'm just going to own what I did, even though it's not very good. I'm not really sure what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, why do I need to, you know, uh, it's art who's to say, right? Like all of these little catchphrases that become like truisms mm-hmm. just emerge organically and naturally. On the other hand, steady state practices of making things good. The question is, what is the good? Mm-hmm. And, and so what, what does that entail? Like what, what's behind that, uh, that would constitute consistent goodness with regards to anything, um, and I, and I believe that there is things and I believe you can make things consistently well, good. Um, and that baseline of quality is not excluded from the, uh, the opportunity to make, make something original. So perfect example. I went to, and so I know music is always really subjective to people, but I saw Andrew Bird last night mm-hmm. and, and it's like our eighth time seeing it. Maybe it's our, our sixth or eighth time seeing it. I can't. So um, Laura and I had a great, my wife, Laura and I had a great conversation just about music. We were mm-hmm. really, it was such a good concert. And, and, uh, um, we were talking about, you know, I said, well, the thing, the thing with Andrew Bird is he is, you know, the guy can whistle like better than anybody. It's amazing. He just, he just can. Right. And cause Laura was like, can you imagine like Andrew Bird as a kid and the, the parents know, yep, there's Andrew. He was always, and it's like, Whistling I just wonder, like a bird. yeah, he just always, you know, and you're like, well, what's interesting is he uh, is a virtuoso in terms of classically trained uh, violinist, yeah. viola, whatever, and also vocalist. Mm-hmm. And then that translates into being able to understand tone and pitch and like whistle in a way I don't know of anybody that can do like what nope. he, I mean. So, and then he can, you know, then he can play guitar and all the other stuff just kind of cascades from that. Um, and, and I said, well, so what's interesting is here you have somebody who is a master at classical music, classical guitar, classical vocals, classical violin. And then he is um, not staying there and making his home there. Mm -hmm. So intensely skilled and then intensely, um, you know, just idiosyncratic, Mm -hmm. unique, but the uniqueness is resting on the skill and the skill level provides greater points of departure for creative opportunity. Mm-hmm. So because he's so yes. robust, it opens up more possibilities and plat, like uh, uh, platitudinal, you know, spaces of, of making. Mm-hmm. And, and then those create nodes of connection and disconnection and dissonance and cock and like, so you're like, and then you've, you, he's intensely intellectual. So then he, he's uh, also like a utterly brilliant songwriter, even if you don't like him, he just is. And so then, and then there is what some people will say is the genius so that like he, um, you know, he's one of the first people that was like recording into a machine and 
playing it back to himself and essentially like operating as a one man band for a while. And you're like, he's like standing in the middle of his own musical tornado and it's all under his orchestra. And you're like, this is really robust. Yeah. Uh, and now, cause we've seen him since 2008. This is why I said, I see him. So it's like this man has, and I've listened to his music, you know, early two thousands going back because of my buddy, Jake butts, who used to just plug music. He's like, you gotta listen to this guy. And mm-hmm. you listen to this guy. And, and he was just that guy. And uh, so here's this person who's just consistently putting out over uh, nearly three decades mm-hmm. music, diversified, divergent, and dare I say original in the grand scheme of things. Um, how did he get there? Well, he made good music mm-hmm. and he was skilled and he didn't fall for the 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 way that the kind of avant-garde guard, guard person may tend to say, well, you know, that person when you learn the skills that way, you get locked in. Well, yeah, it attracts a lot of people that are like that, but that's not this, the problem of what was learned. That's the problem of the learner yeah. not being interested in taking it somewhere else because they're interested in staying there, which is totally fine actually. Hmm. But when you get somebody who knows how to make things well and good, and they have a high degree of learning, they are freed to so many possible expressions that, that other people have no access to because they're not good enough. And they can't make well yeah. enough. That's yeah. a long, but ironically, we spent a lot of time talking about that last night. And I was like, the guy is an original. Mm-hmm. So if you want to call I me, mean, he originates in such a distinct way. There's so many points of departure that you're left going like, th- there may be people that sound like him after, but not before really. And he can cover so much terrain in such a generous and interesting way. Mm-hmm. He can risk it. He can do, he can, we talked about last episode with Zach, but he can risk it. He can, step in and create these gap spaces of opportunity and authenticity where, where he goes off a cliff into a new space. It's nuts. Yeah. I think with it, you know, cause the, the thing that my mind goes to is, is jazz. Yeah. Right. So it's the whole idea of jazz is like these people have played something as, as mundane and basic as scales so much that they can take something and spend four or five minutes during a, during a session mm-hmm. uh, in a song and just like, play scales, but play them in such a beautifully artistic way that you've never heard before. That's right. It's never happened before. And they're doing it uh, because they're good. Yeah. And so when I think about this, it, it, it's one of those, it's not that one begat the other, Yep. Um, but it is where I feel like if you are good somewhere in that trajectory, mm-hmm. originality land is, is landed upon. Yeah. But if you are original, you never have to actually get to good. Yeah. And, and here's the other part. If you land on originality, you may find that you can't do it again. Or you That's can't tough. like, let's say you make an album or a song or a painting or a design. And now there's a pressure on you, mm-hmm. but you don't actually understand how you did it. And then, you know, you may find that you can't do it again if you're lucky enough to do it once. I mean, well, or, yeah. You know, one of, one of the guys we talked about in the past, Saul Bass, um, I believe it was Saul Bass said something about don't, don't worry about trying to be like with the fad. Because the fad will always leave you. Yeah, fad's already changing. That yeah, the fact that you're trying to be with the fad shows you're already too late. Means you're already too late. <laughs> yeah, unless you're at the super epicenter of a trend that's emergent, and mm-hmm. you're like in New York, and you're like you caught it like almost on time. You're like almost a part of the trend that's emerging. But well, also a point in this that's there is like I'm, I don't know. Maybe this is not as charitable as it could be, but um, you know, being around a lot of like kind of earlier young artists and designers or people who want to do this. Um, I don't, I don't have any shortage of like conversations of people 
being original, but I do see a shortage of people desiring to be good. Yeah. Yep. And that's, and that's hard to like see and look at. But then I think about myself, I turn the the eye back on myself and I say, yeah, I've struggled way too much in the past of being original Mm -hmm. because uh, somehow it's a larger value category. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have been original, huge air quotes happening here, um, and not good mm-hmm. in those spaces. And some of the things that have been the most mundane, like blah sort of things, I feel are some of the best work I've ever done. Mm-hmm. And there's no originality to them. Yeah. Um, it's just honestly like kind of nose down, pencil in hand, yeah, hand on mouse, doing design. Well, so going back to something that Zach said in the last episode, um, that I related to, which is you have to have something. So, so as a visual artist, mm-hmm. you got to have something to say. And so what I've found is skills become necessary to facilitate what you're saying. So when you're talking about content, the forms got to be good. You know, you get deliveries got to be good. And, uh, for me in my own development as an artist, um, you know, that's probably the thing is, is, uh, you know, there's some other, other mangled desires in there that are you know, not all pure and good, but, uh, one of the driving, driving ones, it was like, um, finding the right expressive form to facilitate the content, the way in which, you know, I want to say this, like, I got to get this off of my chest. I got, mm-hmm. it's got to get out there. Um, and you scale up to do that. Like, you're like, uh, I want to learn how this works, why this works, how much pressure do I apply to the brush? How little, like, you know, and this is, you know, talking about a long time ago and I'm even, I'm revisiting some of those things right now in a weird way and I don't have the same desires anymore. So it's a totally different world. Like I'm mm-hmm. not thinking about the same things, but, um, so, so just to say like, just to, pit, to draw a connection between then and now and just say that, um, you know, it's like, uh, originality almost will come at the, the irony is originality, originality will come at the expense of things to say. Like mm-hmm. Tribe Called Quest has to go back to is like being very original of a time. Yeah. And they had something to say. And I don't just mean with the words, but also with the musicality. They had something to say. And so like they wanted, it's like people have to hear this. Mm-hmm. And my voice is this way. And like if you go through all the people that had something to say, they said it and it, it typically worked. And then people, we still talk about them. And then there's everybody else. And you don't talk about them very much. And like, you know, if you're unless you're an aficionado and you're really into the history of say hip hop or whatever, like you, you dig back in and any, so any musical crate you dig into the, the more the aficionado, the more they're going to know. But on average, there is certain people that persist because they were like benchmarks. Like you just were like, they maybe wanted, they may have said, I want to be different, but it was, it wasn't the main driver. You know, it's like the temptations there for all of us, but, um, but you, but you gotta, you gotta have something to say, whether it's what your client wants you to say, or it's something you want to say with your client's desires, or if it's you, you know what I mean? Like that's gotta yeah. be there. Cause I'll tell you what, like when I got nothing to say, I, uh, I got some aesthetic abilities to autopilot, but it's not going to be the most, um, it'll be a state of quality that exists in the work, but it won't be the most impactful work. And I've had long seasons of that. I've been mm-hmm. years of that, you know, just frankly, like, so it's an interesting thing that you don't, you don't, you don't want to rest on one rail. Right. You know, I want, I want, I want to be able to make well and, um, I want the, you know, you want to be able to uh, work at all of it, work at your craft. Like the thing I love about sports and basketball is athletes will still talk about working at their craft. Mm-hmm. And it's actually like a cool thing to say. Nobody looks at that and goes, poo poo's that is like, oh, that makes what they do inauthentic. Now I know artists will dis, dis, yeah. uh, validate sports 
Um, I just, you know, as an athlete, you're an athlete, like I can't do that. Um, and I know too many great athletes that are artistic and, you know, like if, if you pay attention, you'll see it real, real artistry. And I always, yeah. you know, it's so funny. Like I never liked Kobe Bryant, but I always go back to him now. I never was a big fan of his, him when he played, but after I was just super weird. But, uh, but everything you watch about him is just like impeccable work at his craft. And it's like, if artists had that mindset and there are artists that do trust me, like I see oh, yeah. them and you're like, holy smokes, mm-hmm. this person is so stinking good. But it's like, but they are working at it because they have something to say and it's gotta be said a certain way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's amazing. You know, the, the people that are like high level, wow, it's breathtaking. That's the Andrew Bird of music, like as an example of that, the guy's impeccable. You know, uh, unfortunately I'm not. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what, there's the. I know that you know he he holds his place within within our culture, um, and you know some people might be like, ah, good, like pop culture crap. Um, but Malcolm Gladwell, you know, said the whole thing about hundred thousand hours. Yeah, um, for you to be like considered like kind of like a genius. A hundred thousand or ten thousand. Ten thousand to proficiency. Hundred thousand. I think it was something along those lines. But it's it's to the point where it's like, yeah, you gotta you got you gotta put in reps. Yes. Right. And like. And there's got to be an assumption like within a hundred thousand hours, like if there's, if I'm not do if I'm not good at all, like I'm giving up before a hundred thousand hours. Yeah. You, you got to realize that, that goes into calling. Person. That goes into calling. Like you probably weren't called to it. Yeah. And it, you know, and it's, but it's one of those things where like, you know, you look at things, um, like, um, like the Beatles, mm-hmm. right. They were just touring Germany for years mm-hmm. doing like three shows a day, six days a week shredding their vocals and they, but that is what made them able to do whatever the heck they wanted mm-hmm. musically they'd put the stuff in like they had gotten to be good mm-hmm. so then they could move towards then you can mess around you can rest on the foundation it, it the foundation is inescapable when you strip away certain like you can't strip away like musical chords mm-hmm. And then expect to play guitar and expect everybody to believe it. Yeah. Because I'll just say it this way because there's an actually an objective reality to musical chords. Yeah. Otherwise, now watch this. Otherwise, a C chord couldn't be played with consistency from any and everyone that tries mm-hmm. because, because it would just be a mere construct and a subjective thing that I call C chord. But no, actually, when played and strummed, it arrives predictably at the same thing. So that tells you something about the world that we live in going back to phenomenon. And, mm-hmm. and so I know we're totally off topic a little bit here, but, but it's, it's just, it's a, a, it's a good it, move towards the next one. Yeah. It's just to say that if I can play C chord consistently and so can you, and you can learn to obtain towards proficiency with that. And then that frees you to make songs that depart and sound different. Mm-hmm. That's the key. And so that's the way the world actually is. And we're really in rebellion to that mm-hmm. and we like to think that we're different but it's more like saying we're different than what i said earlier where you really aren't and you're just making people you're insisting people believe your make-believe yeah totally different thing mm-hmm. makes me think of um was it saul bass who had the learn to draw quote mm-hmm. so there's a spirit behind that of because he says something to the effect of if you don't learn to draw you'll spend your whole career navigating around the your inability to basically actuate something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's true, and I think that gets to this conversation of like learn to make what is good, mm-hmm. and you will from there be able to possibly make new things. But if you don't learn to make things well, then you will spend your entire career navigating around your inability to make things well, which will then put a 
overpressure on making something that's novel so that way the novelness can distract from the fact that it might be not made very well yep yeah shoot for good and originality may be thrown in shoot for yeah. originality you may miss everything and when you're good originality won't throw you off too much no because you've, you can just, because you've been good and you got your stuff you're resting on mm-hmm. um and you're good to go um so we got a third one and this one uh this one's going to be fun to talk about so let's just jump into okay. it okay you know albert used to call the artists the swindlers well he meant it in the in the positive way because we we can make illusions of things that people will think it's it's something else uh, you know, we're, we're in, a, in a way, we're swindlers because we have to make things look better than they actually are. There's an old term. So you got to look at what I'm, I'm going back to like, I know what I think a swindler is. Yeah. Swindler yeah. is like a grifter, a con man. Mm-hmm. Cheats to frauds, Ponzi. Um, yeah, so the swindler... So the, the inherent problem with that mm-hmm. statement is is a weakness in understanding the the material world nature reality some people call it creation whatever you call it that in what it is as it is mm-hmm. so like when that is a when you have a weak understanding of that at, at a starting point then you assume more on what you do at a latter point Mm-hmm. So you, you pressurize it more. So, so, um, so then when someone makes something and you, so follow, follow me here. If you, if you say, if, if you don't start with a high view of, of the world we've been sort of given the, the mm-hmm. world that is, then you're looking at this stuff you pick up to make with as being somewhat inert, a little neutral, yeah. maybe actually deprived of meaning and value mm-hmm. and therefore not really much there until I make something out of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then when I make something out of it and it does these things that exceed the boundaries of what it actually is, that rests an assumption on the artist, um, n- not in the reality that we're making out of. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? So, but if I, st- so what I'm saying, so then it's like, well, you're, you know, it's, it's uh, smoke and mirrors. You're being dishonest. Like, like you made this Trump low effect and it looks like a bird sitting on a window seal, which is flat paint. Well, it's like, no, th- I'm drawing a reference from the world. And if, if I have a high view of the world and I've actually start to see those things, creation, nature, whatever you want to call it, um, then, uh, then I know that I had less to do to achieve that. And the outcome is, is part of the elusivity of reality mm-hmm. that it always alludes to more actually. So when it starts as an elusive reality, it's not surprising when it continues to do that. And therefore, it's not a swindling as much as it is a po- poesis or a poeticness mm-hmm. that is bound up in our inherent experience with reality. And so there's no discontinuity there. It's, it's, it's part and parcel. Um, and so then, uh, now, then it becomes, am I leveraging reality? I would say faithfully or unfaithfully. So if, unfaithfully would be, am I using this in a way that is dishonest Mm -hmm. so that becomes um really just about the character of the maker as a swindler but has nothing to do necessarily with the the making it's just a character uh intentionality issue with the person you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. um but if you go the other way it's almost like even if you're intending for something good and has illusionistic leanings that that mislead people well one um now whether you liked it or not you're you're um 
you're the you're a uh, alchemist you're or you're like a wielder of magic or you're yeah. you know you're sophistry you're like manipulating people um and and if they're holding the same assumption then they can cry foul and say you manipulated me but if we're everyone's starting with a right assumption i know that's a audacious statement i just made then you're not surprised both as audience or maker that things do more than we expect and they doubly do more when we intend um, and that's actually not dishonest because it's part of our starting assumption of wonder enchantment that we actually expect that there's wonder in the world mm-hmm. and we're we're willing to be available and open to the wonder that we have not yet tasted fully that is still uh, there to be had perpetually so so all of it then flows into just a character issue am i trying to uh, bamboozle you uh, to buy some bunk stuff or not or you know by the you know my, am i whoring out my skill set to make some money mm-hmm. and cheapening the quality because you know those become character issues moral issues not yeah. not whether or not the art or design is flawed yeah the um i think there's a there's a conversation of of expectation mm-hmm. i think that's that's bound up in that which is um like what do you what do you expect the world to be mm-hmm. so i think where you're talking uh, maybe a bit more epistemological about it it's uh, i think i'm looking moving outward right so um where you would have uh, some conversations of the the world is in a constant descent it is constantly getting worse sort of ideas um or is is the world actually improving in ways and so i think there's an there's an expectation in this as well where it's like are we are we pushing people towards uh towards the world we have experienced in the past that may be hard and difficult and we're compensating by being swindlers or are we, uh, or are we doing art that's pointing to the world that will be, um, as we move forward. And I don't mean that in like a simplistic progressive way. I mean that in terms of a, like, um, that we are active agents within the world that does exist with real ability to bring people together or sever ties, um, to make someone's day better or make it worse that the stuff we make actually has like impact and import mm-hmm. and what goes on. Um, and it's like, you know, but what, what, what is your expectation within that world? Yeah. Is your expectation that it, it continues to be garbage or is your expectation that no, it actually, it actually may rise yeah, and re- or even return back to original form. How, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. different, different philosophical veins of thought. Sure. Yeah. 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 And that's, a, that's a richness thing uh, through and through. And then there's just the, historic difficulty and trust our trust of our senses which is you know so ontologically i was speaking earlier and then it implies epistemology both and then then you're kind of speaking about eschatology like where things are headed or a telos or Mm -hmm. so when you all of those are pushing on each other actually they're all kind of you know together um and one of the things that we don't trust in statement like in theory but in actuality we kind of do is is um your senses, your perception. So the yeah. whole question of like, well, that's, you know, that's, that's a false, that's a faux expression that tricks my senses into believing it. That's dishonest. Mm-hmm. Well, as soon as you speak about honesty or dishonesty, you're uploading morals. Then you have to get into like, what moral framework are you right. operating out of? And is it a shared one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a really, really, it descends quickly, but what he shared is a really historic perspective that a lot of people believed and mm-hmm. has had trickle down effect and has shaped a lot of the way art art education has shift, excuse me, shifted paradigmatically. Like the paradigm shift has moved away from that. So then it becomes, you know, 
the move away from uh, perceptual phenomena and into raw material phenomena. So you get a lot of like, um, you know, just materiality, like the truth of the material is a way of grounding an authentic aim from the artist. Um, and, you know, and then it's like, well, can we trust the honest material? And that becomes a whole discussion that I've, I've been educated through for years, you know, mm-hmm. many moons ago. Um, and the, you know, the irony is, uh, even with authentic, uh, honest materials has, n- has no direct link to whether or not, uh, the artist that made him was being honest. Mm-hmm. So this issue of morality that just, uh, you know, it's funny too, you know, there's an ennobling equality associated with creativity and artistry, historically speaking, like, or a desire for there to be, right? whether it's there or not. And so there's, a, so there's like a holding artists to a higher standard and sometimes artists doing that as well. And then, uh, so that you can, they can fall harder for having like a moral, moral failure in their character. Um, so then we can talk about why the arts are dangerous and we should, you know, contain artists and designers because they can offset, you know, a society through through their sophistry and their magic and, yeah. and you know what I mean? So there's all these weird uh, assumptions bound up in that, you know, it's like I can convince people to, you know, it's like I can convince people to do all these things in almost like in a propaganda way. And yet mm-hmm. that's what the news does all the time. Yeah, yeah. Straight propaganda across mm-hmm. the board, you know? And um, so, yeah, it's a really, it's interesting to see that those ideas, his ideas, that kind of sentiment morph and to kind of see where we're at now. Um, where we're back at, we're back in the saddle with, um, trusting our perceptions. Cause we're like metaverse augmented reality, you know, like we're, we're, we're headlong into it again. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've, we pulled away, you know, like we cycle vicious cycle, we cycle out and we cycle back into a greater extent of it. And we've dipped back into the greater level. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's just what it is, what we do. It's what humans do. I don't, I don't, you know. I think we've already shared what we think about it in a lot of ways, but um, yeah. So swindlers, man, I mean, that's a, I think that's a cheeky fun way of saying it too. That's shop talk. I like it. And I like it in a off color way. Uh-huh. Um, but I do think it's a way of owning. I do think it's a way of, of saying like, if it's like, if you, you know, as a poor kid, it's, as a poor kid, you can either own being poor or you can deny it and try to prove people wrong. Yeah. Both of that is sort of in some ways you're operating out of other people's assumptions and definitions at that point. And his statement about swindlers is more of an, a conceding and owning it and saying, I'll be your, I'll fine. You want to call us this? I'll be a swindler. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's sort of like wearing it and taking away its power. Yeah. And I see the value in that. Um, but as I stand now, I, I want to work out a better definition of what an artist is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, coming from like Joseph Albers and Paul Rand and that, the, the conversation that, you know, that he's adopting that, that phrase from Joseph Albers and then what Joseph Albers was dealing with, um, in terms of subject matter and like what his theorizing was, uh, with the Bauhaus and beyond and stuff with color theory. um, they both would fall on the point of like, um, there's nothing wrong with you making like a living off of your art. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think they would also like kind of strike back against like the, the wholesale, like whoring out or bastardization of the Mm -hmm. field for just getting a buck. Yeah. You know, so there's, there's also a way I think you can read it as a positivistic statement. Um, 
you know, where it's like, if, if, if we're always kind of engaged in showing something other than what is right in front of your face, we're always swindling you. But my question would then be like, but swindling for what purpose or to what ends? Mm-hmm. You know, so if there's a, if there's a swindling where you're taking these lesser possessions in order to replace them with something better, mm-hmm. you know, so you're taking away my, my inability or, uh, to see certain beauty or my clouded eyes or the, just the experiential reality of my life that makes me kind of too tired to see the things that you're showing me in your art. If you're taking that away and replacing it with the beautiful things you're making, then swindle me all day. Mm-hmm. But if you're painting the picture of some perfect family or perfect technological thing, or that this is going to cure all my uh, ills and it's just going to further like ramshackle me into some terrible existence, then I don't need any of that swindling. Yeah. That's part and parcel for so much of what we see, what we see in A hideous already. strength. It is. And so, you know, it's, there is also the question of like, well, what, you know, yeah. If you're, if you're taking, if you're taking something from me to replace it with something better, you can, I'll leave the door open. Come yeah. on in. <laughs> yeah. But make it better. Yeah. But make it better. And I think that's actually a really fantastic call to, to artists as well. Yeah. It's like, if you're always maybe, you know, the word, like you said, it's shop talk. It's, it's, it's kind of coming in provocative. Um, you know, but if, if you are always kind of taking something from your audience and putting something else in its place, then it gives you a space where you have to kind of sit and consider like, what am I actually doing? Yes. What am I giving? Yeah. What is to use unpopular words within the field possibly like, what is the service or what is the gift that I leave with my audience? Yes. Or what service do I provide to them or for them? Um, I think it's a, you know, there's a lot of ways that uh, I think that that conversation can be fruitful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a good place to end. Yeah, I think so too. Cause, um, I mean, what I would say is if you, uh, have any interest, you, you like Paul Rand, like certainly do some research or whatever, but he has a great book called conversations with students where you will get a hundred percent like his voice, because I think it is just straight transcript of these conversations he's had with students. I think it might've been at Yale. Um, and they were almost like dinner time kind of conversations, like nice. very small, intimate things. Nice. Um, and there's a little bit of uh, context in there. I think there's like maybe a, an opening essay or something like that. There's some introductory text, but it's really great. Also, it's a beautiful book. Um, but yeah, until next time, we do some more design stuff. Uh, we do love you guys. You are a fantastic audience and we'll catch you then. Bye bye. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottle.